I have nothing positive to say about United lately. So, do you have anything positive to say about any airline right now? Yeah, <laughs> anybody but United. I mean, go, go, team, go! All of you. I hope you survive. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <Except United. laughs> You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with host Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Welcome to episode 289 of Dots, Lines, and Destinations. I am Stephen Seagraves, joined by the usual crew, Seth Miller, Fosma Moon. Gentlemen. Who? <laughs> who dis? Uh, New phone, who dis? <laughs> yeah, yeah. New podcast, uh, who dis? Yeah, same, same uh, different week, same home, I guess. All of us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well, you know, I, I'm, uh, I've been cooking up a storm and I've been uh, texting with our dear uh exiled producer and he's like he's like oh i, I can meet you somewhere we can socially distance trade off because i'm making some hot sauces I'm like how about this we just go to the airport <laughs> there'll be no one there <laughs> and, and he goes are the lots even open I'm like screw the lots we can just pull up to the terminal and stand right there yeah, yeah just hang out <laughs> you have the newark port authority police department shop gentlemen what are you doing here uh exchanging <laughs> hot sauces yeah that's gonna go great <laughs> i don't want to be your bail call one one argentinian and one brown guy <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the plot of a movie. Uh, could be. <laughs> um, so before we get into the news, we had a listener ask a question. Uh, Lee uh, asked a question about kind of what would happen if we saw consolidation in the industry or uh, will we see any consolidation around metro and regional airports? So Lee is from around the Cincinnati area and um, he's saying Cincinnati, Dayton and Columbus could be consolidated somewhere along I-71. Uh, with same with Cleveland or Akron. Um, and he's just asking what's if places like Toledo stick around, will, will we simplify the air system? And we kind of talked about this a little bit with some of the airlines wanting to not fly to certain tertiary cities or combine the service. Um, so what are the chances of this? I mean, anything is possible, right? But a lot of those secondary airports are uh, funding a lot of those flights. Yeah, there's essential air service or they're they're paying some kind of marketing fee to the airline to be there, right? Exactly. And they're generally cheaper to operate at. Yeah. Right. That's a, a big part of it is you get a why did, you know, why does Allegiant fly to St. Cloud instead of Minneapolis, St. Paul? And the answer is, they, they you know, A, they're the only game in town, but B, they pay less to be there on top of and or, you know, as Foss mentioned, they get subsidies to show up. So... There's a combination of financial factors that go in there. Now, that all works well and good when there's demand. When the demand disappears, things start to get ugly in a hurry. And so, you know, do, will we continue to see all the random cities that currently have service still having service, you know, at the end of September mm. when the CARES Act requirements disappear? I'm going to guess no. I'm going to guess that we will see some stuff shed. Um, we'll, you know... I, We've already seen airports very worried that they're going to lose service. Uh, Newport News and Roanoke are considered the same metro area by the DOT for reasons. And I mean, they're close enough, but not really. And so right now under the CARES Act, an airline only has to serve one or the other. Hmm. Even in, you know, or same for Providence, Manchester and Boston. And those are like an hour plus apart. Yeah. So 
in some cases, it's really a problem of like, what are you going to do with that? Uh, and who, who's really going to keep that service, but at the same, and, and the airlines, you know, in the CARES Act filings where, you know, the Newport News airport was like, no, don't do this to us. We're going to lose all our flights. And we know it admitting that they're the, you know, the second tier player within their local area, but that's going to happen. It's definitely going to happen. Yeah. I mean, it's so, I mean, I guess the question then for me is when you look at like the Midwest, uh, going further West than, than where we is. So I'm thinking of, you know, uh, you mentioned St. Cloud. I'm thinking of Minnesota, Wisconsin. There's a lot of these airports there where they are close. Er, Appleton uh, and Green Bay. Yeah, yeah. Thinking of those, and to me, it makes sense in those cases to consolidate because this these aren't. It might be like two CR2s a day for United or three uh, CR7s for Delta. Um, I, you know, could you fit all that into one airport with a 320? Maybe. Well, I mean, you might be able to, but then you have – there's more to it at play because you're not going from Appleton or Green Bay to either just Minneapolis or Chicago. You're, most of those people are going on, right? Yeah. No one's really get, get jumping on a plane to go to one of those places. They would most likely just drive. So can whoever their carrier du jour is get them where they want to go? Mm. Right, That's part of it. Right. If you go to Minneapolis, does Delta doesn't fly everywhere from Minneapolis, right? Then double connect, whereas you have a lot more options out of Chicago. Right, and the, all these routes exist because the demand was there. Right, if the demand continues or returns, those flights will be there. But if the demand isn't there, then there's no reason to have the flights. So, so kind of a, along those lines, Foz, do you do you guys see demand um, in the big cities coming back faster, or the demand in the smaller towns coming back? Faster? I think I think demand will start coming back. Uh, a in the smaller towns because the bigger cities. They generally don't need to escape as much, right? They they're they have a lot more available to them. Um, but but the, where I think demand is going to be the worst is the New York metro area for a while. Until people feel safe or comfortable? Dude, between the New York and New Jersey governors, they have no idea what the hell they're doing. <laughs> do, you, do you have any thoughts on that, Seth? Like, uh, which which comes back faster, if any? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me which of the governors I liked best. Oh, uh, no. I, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to decline an answer on that. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, everything I've seen so far says that uh, there's an expectation leisure travel is actually going to come back first, which mm-hmm. is interesting and a little bit surprising uh, compared to prior recession type experiences. In this case, it's because it's induced by medical issue rather than purely financial issues. Mm-hmm. And there's a sort of duty of care or responsibility that an employer has to the employee. If they send you to work somewhere and you get sick along the way, it's their fault. Right, they have to, in theory, take care of you, and it, it all counts. And so, sending someone out and having them c- contract a pandemic coronavirus uh, bug is a pretty bad situation. And that's why we saw all the companies suddenly, even though I'll say the threat wasn't necessarily fully clear, it's why we saw all the companies issue no travel orders, mm-hmm. even not sure what the real situation was. None of them wanted that liability. Now, depending on what comes out of the uh, Oval Office these days, there's you know talk about. Uh, executive order exempting uh, certain meatpacking facilities from those liabilities because having pork is more important than those whether those people die or not. Um, and I'm par- perhaps oversimplifying things there and editorializing. I apologize only a little bit. Um, <laughs> sorry, there's rum involved in tonight's broadcast. Hey, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, how that changes with the duty of care stuff is hard to say, but I certainly can understand that business travel will return more slowly. And that says to me that bigger cities will uh, 
return a little more slowly just because generally speaking, there's a higher proportion of business travel at those airports. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the one other thing I want to sort of throw in with Lee's comment is he mentions uh, high speed rail and sort of trying to bring some of this connectivity together. And I wonder, you know, if there was a real investment in infrastructure at a coordinated level, right? One of the weird challenges of the airports is they're all independent or mostly independent. Um, not, it's not, there's no sort of national plan of where we need airports and how they should operate. They're left to run as either private businesses or more commonly sort of municipal operations with very rare occasions of being bigger than that. Um, and so if you had some real infrastructure in, you know, high speed rail connecting the Cleveland, Dayton, Columbus, or excuse me, the Cincinnati, Dayton, Columbus area, and it happened to also stop at one of the airports, would that change the situation? I think the answer is probably decidedly yes, but we're never <laughs> going to have that high speed rail. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the, the one thing I would add is, you know, if the, what they're saying is true about leisure travel returning first, I, I don't envision a lot of the secondary airports will see a lot of service with that. Right. Um, yeah. A lot of these secondary airports, particularly where we see CR2s, are really driven by high revenue uh, passengers, and those aren't leisure. Counterpoint, the and maybe it's not secondary, but tertiary airports uh, could see a very quick return from the likes of a, an Allegiant or a Spirit or a Frontier as you know they feed the very random routes like Grand Forks to Las Vegas. Absolutely agree, but you won't be seeing the majors running into the secondary and tertiary airports. Unless, yeah, fair. Agree with that. Um, on, an, on another topic, uh, the airlines are kind of jumping – the United States airlines, the U.S. airlines are kind of jumping on the masks uh, required uh, bandwagon. So American and JetBlue are now requiring passengers to wear masks. Is that correct? American says they will issue masks and sanitizer. Yes. American will give them out on request. JetBlue is requiring it as of May 4th, I think. Okay. Um, Star Wars Day? Yeah, Star Wars Day. And uh, Delta and United, I think, also are – all four of them are requiring employees to wear masks. Um, And actually, Southwest on their earnings call this morning – this is Tuesday – on Tuesday morning said it was going to start a – it was working on rolling out a process for requiring mask usage from its frontline employees – I believe that will include flight attendants as well as folks at the ticket counter stuff. They're also putting up like barricade the, the barricades at the ticket counters and things like that. The, the plexiglass. So, um, there's. I have, sorry, I have a slight segue to make here. In all your years, could you have ever imagined that would be acceptable to be walking through an airport with a mask after nine eleven? Uh, as a white man, yes. <laughs> okay. Sorry. <laughs> as anything else? No. I mean, to be fair, like I, in Asia, yes, we see you see it a lot in Asia. Um, but but okay, let me take a step back because we're, we're if, surgical uh, medical masks. That's fine. But that's not what we're seeing. In no, people like wrapping bandanas around their face. I watched a guy walk into Dunkin Donuts wrapped up like a mummy today. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're saying that if I walked into the airport with like the skull bandana where it looked like the bottom of the skull, you know, on my bandana for my face, that, that probably not a great idea. I don't think they would, they would say no, though. You know, yeah, they probably wouldn't. Three months ago, they would have stopped you and had all sorts of conversations with you. On the plus side, does this, you know, assuming that it really does, everybody ju- does just let it happen, does this solve some of the inherent racism problems in our society? I think, unfortunately, the answer is no, but. Yeah, probably not. I, so here's my here's my thing with all of it, right? With uh, the TSA, right? They're probably going to ask you to remove the mask to, to check your ID and your photo. And they're, they're putting plastic up. They've got plexiglass at JFK now. 
Yeah, but I mean, to- touching the mask is just as bad as not wearing the mask. So to me, it's it's not. I don't know. It just doesn't seem to make sense. I would rather them just say, you know, we'll hand out masks when you go through security or something. And I'll pay 50 cents for the mask and my ticket (laughs) rather than have everybody show up and have to take them off. Because that's just as bad because we know people love to wash their hands in airports. If if you've ever listened to me talk about my experiences. Yeah. Um. (laughs) Going back to the Southwest earnings call this morning, a couple other just tidbits that sort of fit into this. Uh, Gary Kelly did say that they don't expect to see uh, convention mice type travel uh, conferences and such really come back until late 2021. So that they're, they're seeing 18 months out before any of that even starts to really rebuild. So that's another reason they don't expect business travel to come around, but also that, you know, quote, I don't expect that forever more, pe- that forever more people will stay six feet apart and wear masks for the rest of their lives. But until we get to that point, we have to be prepared for masks and social distancing. So, um, it's going to be interesting. Strange times. Yeah. I just, you know, I actually, we watched contagion last night because oh, that's why, not, why not? Uh, didn't want to sleep, you know? Um, and it, it is, it was interesting to see like their, their take on say Hong Kong airport during a, a, an outbreak of pandemic and uh, you know, people wearing masks standing in line. And I'm like, man, this, this is re- the reality that we're probably going to see is people boarding planes, wearing masks, everybody having them. And you being the odd man out for not having one. Like the vice president. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> how, how is France handling this given they put up such a big stink about uh, Muslim women? Jobs. Yeah. Um, probably badly, but that's just a guess. I actually have no idea. Yeah. Um, Seth, you, you posted a story or put a story up, uh, not on your site, but just in the notes. The Delta is now manufacturing COVID transport pods for the military. I did put it on my site also. Um, oh, I okay. I didn't. I didn't I, when I put it on our show notes, I hadn't written it yet. So that's why there's no link there. Sorry. Um, okay. Yeah. So this is kind of bizarre. Uh, Delta has a group called Delta Flight Products. And Delta Flight Products is sort of like Lufthansa Technic. It's a manufacturing and STC and modifications arm of the parent company. So they handle things like building structures and dividers and monuments for galleys and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've also built uh, the in-flight entertainment system that you get on the A330neo uh, with the streaming IFE and whatnot. And so they've got all sorts of sort of engineering and technical capabilities. And right now, no one's doing any modification to airplanes. So you've got a whole very smart, very airline-focused, capable staff with nothing to do. And uh, given that, the... Um, they they were they've been looking for things to do obviously and apparently the U.S. government came out with an RFP saying we need transport facilities if we have soldiers who are infected you know negative pressure vessel uh, hardened to military standards can be transported on a I'm guessing C-130 cargo plane <laughs> and what they came up with is a shipping container so standard 40 foot shipping container looks you know ruggedized whatever they take it cut the ends off put in real doors and such um, redo the interior with like, you know, structures to support up to 30 or 32 seats inside sort of six, 15 or 16 facing each other down the outside walls on the back half. And then the front half is a like ante room for support staff and doctors to work in. And if they have to switch the back half out to stretchers, they can do that too. It lowers the density, obviously. And it, it's really cool looking. They got the, t- the tech ops team to come in and help build it. 
And, you know, their, their comment was, you know, it's pneumatics, it's electrical, it's welding, it's painting, it's all stuff that we do to keep our planes in the air. And so we're just doing it now in a shipping container, making it airplane safe and giving it to the U.S. government or selling it, not giving it. But it's there's a video, and show, you know, it's a little bit of rah-rah, whatever, but it's still pretty cool to see it come together. And the what they're doing, I find really interesting, right? It's not just for COVID-19 if it's anthrax exposure or anything else where there's a contagion and there's concern about the uh, the people, but they need to transport them. This gives them a way to do it that is safe for everybody else on the plane, too. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's neat. Um, you know, does it have any applicability to anything any of us will ever see? God, I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they have they have, you know, uh, there's transports for I know the CDC has transports for sick patients that are, you know, uh, secure. Uh, but I don't I don't I think those are few and far between. I think. There's and, and I think those are just like a private jet that yeah, they yeah. clean pretty well when they're done. Right. Like they, they control who goes in and out and at the end, scrub it down really good. But it's not really isolated and secure or certainly not in a volume that's useful for military action exactly yeah yeah if you if you had multiple people with and that were infected yeah. you, you wouldn't be able to i mean the, the plane the other thing you know i mentioned lufthansa technic earlier they have a patient transport sort of quick quick install kit that I, it's two or three rows of three across seats in economy get taken out and they can basically like on the seat rails bolt in a icu <laughs> I did see their I did see their transport. They have like a, a military transport that can be outfitted with a basically a hospital, an ICU yeah. bed. So it's not not a full like surgery suite, but pretty close to it. Uh, you, you, know, you don't want to be cutting someone and like hit turbulence. <laughs> but um, a lot of the a lot of the other support care stuff is available in this sort of pod that goes in, and they put curtains up around it. And they actually, we have a mutual colleague. I think you guys know um, who has used to be a medevac nurse. And now is it, you know, still as a medic um, and used to fly it, like used to get flown to random place in the world, spend two days there to make crew rest rules and then fly back with someone who needed to medevac. So um, really cool. But he's got to use those facilities a few times and said that they literally like you call Lufthansa, give them a few days notice. They take they figure out what plane is going to be scheduled, keep it on the ground for an extra few hours, swap that kit in and it shows up at your airport with the hospital bed, essentially. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, re- it's really cool. But there's apparently they've since added a with a partner a modification to it that lets you put the person in a bubble <laughs> to try to make it contagion containing. Um, no, is the in-flight movie Boy in the Plastic Bubble at that point? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving on. So <laughs> <laughs> now they've I, taken the steam out of that. <laughs> Embraer and Boeing, uh, the deal between them is is dead. Long, long live Embraer and Boeing. Uh, Yay. <laughs> I, I, I'm sad about it. I mean, I think, I mean, it was pretty, Embraer was pretty, really raring to go, right? I mean, it was kind of like in motion. Yeah. Um, and now not. <laughs> and now Embraer is pursuing arbitration to make Boeing pay it hundreds of millions of dollars for terminating the deal. Yeah. Yeah, bad. And what was Boeing's reasoning? Is it just COVID or is there another reason? <laughs> Officially? The party line is Embraer did not meet the requirements that were set forth in the joint venture agreement in time to consummate the joint venture. Um, unofficially, who I think it's a money game and Boeing having very little and, you know, all sorts of trouble these days. Uh, not good. Uh, there's also the part where the EU had yet to approve the deal, mm. even though the U.S. had and a few other and Brazil, Brazil had everybody else had. They were still waiting on EU approval. So who knows if that plays into it. 
How, how is how's Embraer doing financially right now? Do you know off the top have, of your head? I have no idea. I, I'm just wondering if they're in bad shape. or I mean, they, they haven't had any of the issues that Boeing has had recently. Um, they have not killed 380-something passengers because they misprogrammed their planes. That's true. Yeah, exactly. And I suspect they're doing better than Bombardier. Yeah. That no longer has a commercial aircraft business there. <laughs> Probably better um, than Sukhoi. <laughs> Uh, yes. Also with recent plane crashes that killed people and perhaps not really selling airplanes anymore, but maybe. No. who they got? Something like a UN agency just signed a contract with someone that flies SSJs to run something. And I found that hysterical. Really? Anyway, yeah. It was like a World Food Program kind of thing, but it wasn't WFP. But like some agency signed up a deal with a random charter airline that uses SSJs. They're just going to send them down to Africa and run them down there? Is that, the new Russ, is that the new Russ bucket, the new AEN-72 that they're going to fly? You know? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, no, it, I can't imagine it's good. This is any of this is good news for Embraer, um, mm. right? They they were going to benefit from Boeing's sales arm, and Boeing was going to benefit by having a smaller plane in its portfolio. And now Boeing has nothing below 150-ish seats, 160-ish seats. I forget what we're calling the new Max 7 because they added two rows to it back when, you know, everybody needed a bigger plane. And that that's bad, especially when Airbus has the the C series, the A two twenty one hundred and three hundred that can go down to one hundred and ten hundred and twenty seats pretty comfortably. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which is not to say that the E jets, the E twos aren't capable in that market. Um, they're smaller certainly than the A two twenties, but and they have a range challenge. Uh, if I remember correctly, the comments from David Nealman, who's founding, who's starting his new Breeze airline, who who the hell knows if that's happening or not, still uh, was talking about leasing some of the old M- Embraer E190s from Azul, which is one of his other airlines. Um, I think using money that he was going to get from selling his shares in Tap. Uh, <laughs> so that's quite cars. the sh- quite the shell game he's got running there. But he. Uh, he, he's on record as basically saying if you get up to like two, two and a half hours, the E90 is great. After that, you, you, even though technically they can fly further, they, the costs get out of whack. They just the unit costs and the fuel requirements and how you, know, you have to carry extra fuel and yada, yada, yada. That always skews at some point. And that's the tipping point for the E90. So, mm. so I, I don't really see anyone running out to buy new planes anytime soon. Well, there's that. So I don't think they're any worse off than they would have been with Boeing. I, I guess my yeah no I mean are they worse off I guess the question is does would having the Boeing relationship have helped in terms of securing deals today for purchases five years from now or something like that uh, to try to help smooth some of the cash flow challenges I, I honestly I don't, and I don't know I'm yeah, sort of making shit up now. I, I mean I think being in making the being in the business of making airplanes is not the business you want to be in right now for the next couple of years. And and we didn't we didn't mention this last show, but or maybe we didn't. I just don't remember. Uh, South uh, South African are they are they done? As in not done yet. done or, or still alive? They're in Alitalia State right now. Well, not quite, but I mean they're, they're trying. They're not dead yet. Okay. Right. The uh, the government has decided to stop pouring money in, and the the people responsible for overseeing the operations and sort of the recovery and bankruptcy have said, yeah, it's bad to just give us more money. We aren't going to use it. Right. So don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) But we we, we have no chance of success kind of thing. Um, So, you know, how that plays out, who the hell knows, but yeah, not great. And and on that note, I mean, uh, I think Foz, you you mentioned the Virgin empire is kind of falling apart as well. Uh, What's, what's the deal with that? I mean, Virgin Australia went to administrative administration a week, two weeks ago, 
And now Virgin Atlantic is on the verge of the same if they can't find some money. Yeah, but it's cool because Wiz Air got funds from the UK government. Well, Virgin didn't. And, and, I still haven't read that. I didn't read past the headlines. I don't know what the real story is there, but I found that amusing. But Wiz Air probably requires a lot more, a lot less than Virgin does, right? Let's let's be real. Virgin has been on the. Virgin would have failed a long time ago if Delta didn't put money into it a couple of years ago. And so to me, that speaks when even in good times, you can't survive. You have a problem with the way your company is run. It's a business model challenge. Yeah. I mean, there's words there, I swear. Uh, One of the challenges I feel like for Virgin is it's always projected itself as this big, like sort of wonderful to everything to everybody kind of airline. And it's actually pretty small. Virgin Atlantic. Yeah. I mean, they, they serve, what, 20 destinations? With like 18 planes now, 15 planes. I mean, they've scaled back a little bit. Maybe it was 20, 35 planes before. Um, it was a pretty small operation. Yeah, it's not a very big operation. And they've shrunk over the years too, right? Uh, but it's it's a perception thing. But it, it makes me wonder, right? Delta a few years ago pivoted to move away from alliances and go into all these, buy, in essence, buy board seats on all these airlines and buy equity interests in these airlines. And they're starting to fall. And Del- and that's going to reflect on Delta at some point in their stock if it hasn't already. Right, forty two planes, most close. Um, but many, seven of those are seven forty sevens that aren't coming back. Um, and how many of them are grounded seventy nines? Seventeen seven eight sevens in the fleet, and fourteen A three thirties and four A three fifties. So, um, yeah, it uh, to the Delta point. You know, are they all failing? I don't know. Let I mean. It's hard to judge anything right now, given that every airline is failing right now. Well, yes, but whether or not they make it to the other side of this is a pretty big deal, right? And Virgin Australia doesn't look like it's going to make it to the other side. Virgin Atlantic, I can't see anyone really dumping money into an airline right now, so I don't see Virgin Atlantic really surviving. And Koreans having problems as well. Like, yeah. The shining star right now is Aeromexico. Did, didn't I read something about um, possibly KLM wanting to, to separate from Air France? Yes. That's 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 yet another issue because the Dutch and French governments are hate each other. Yeah, and France is dumping, I think, like nine billion euros into Air France KLM. Yeah, and the Dutch are two or three, but the Dutch feel like they're always propping up the French side because it's so mismanaged. Gotcha. Yep. Lovely. It's a great time. It's a great time. Um, and Lefty so, might file for bankruptcy. Oh God. <laughs> Any other news you want to share, Foz? You're just a beacon of joy. <laughs> um, Seth, there's a bunch of triangle tag routes on JetBlue, yes. Frontier, and Spirit. Yeah, and you're excited they, but sad. I am both very excited and very sad. So because of the CARES Act stuff, all the airlines are trying to cut back but have to maintain minimum levels of service and are trying to do that with as few flights and as few planes as possible. And depending on the airline, they're rewriting their route maps in super creative ways. So you get like JetBlue flying either from Boston or JFK to Seattle and connecting down to Portland or to Denver and connecting to Albuquerque, Uh, Long Beach to Bozeman via Salt Lake City. Um, There's some really interesting stuff with some of those. And uh, Orlando to Sarasota, I think, is one of them. (laughs) Um, So it's... It's a way to sort of get around the problem while, or of not wanting to spend the money while still meeting the rules to get the money from the feds. And I like the concept. I respect how they're doing it. I'm sad because I know I need to stay home and not fly any of them. But there's some sexy lines. There are. And it, what's really interesting is if you look at it, like JetBlue's are most are tag routes. Alaska Airlines is doing tag routes also. Uh, Spirit and Frontier are doing triangles. And they're doing it mostly in a way that gets their crew home same day 
So mm-hmm. they have to be sort of aggressive in how they're scheduling them. But like Pittsburgh to Latrobe is 40 or 50 miles in central in Pennsylvania. But Spirit flies to Latrobe and the DOT won't let them not fly to Latrobe anymore, even though Pittsburgh is right there. And so they're like, fine, we'll fly from, I forget if it's Orlando or Fort Lauderdale, up to Latrobe, across to Pittsburgh, and then back down. Um, they're connecting like uh, Greensboro and Asheville and Charlotte, or one of those goes to Charlotte. There's a Richmond, Virginia to Charleston, West Virginia route via Orlando or to and from Orlando. It goes via both those cities. There's some really fun stuff, and Frontier's doing similar things. Um, again, with a focus on getting their crew back to base that night. Doesn't it? Doesn't it seem like a little bit of the, like there's too much flying still? Like just yes. just a tad bit. Yes. It, like it just seems like some of that's unnecessary. Sorry, Foz, I cut you off. No, I was just gonna say, how long before the majors get on that game and have like a five stop cross country CR two fight? If they did it in a DC-10, I'd be on board. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, where are they going to get a DC-10? I don't know. In the <laughs> desert somewhere. <laughs> Call FedEx telling you to ride in a box. <laughs> yeah, I'm down. How about an L-1011? Would you settle oh, for that? Yes, absolutely. Is FedEx technically, are they DC-10s or MD-11s? Or DC-10s they're, with the MD-11 cockpit, right? Yeah, they're the MD-10s. Yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, yeah, no, they're just there are all these suddenly like, and it's for terrible reasons that they have to do it. But there's all these cool routes, and I find myself sad because I won't get to fly any of them. But I mean, is the DOT misstepping here by forcing some of these routes to continue? I'm torn on this, and I've written some things in about it. Initially, I thought the DOT screwed up badly by requiring all the tiny cities to still get served. Um, I'm still not convinced that it's a good idea to require that service. But what's interesting is the DOT is basically telling smaller airlines, which is anybody but the big four, that they don't they no longer have to fly to large hubs. So the DOT declare large hub in the U.S. airspace is any airport that has more than one percent of traffic or emplanements. And then on top of that, the DOT added a few other airports that get a lot of connections. So Portland is not one percent of emplanements, but it gets a lot of connecting traffic, apparently, according to the DOT or Nashville. There's a few like that. They found 26 different airports. And all of a sudden, the small airlines don't have to support or serve the, those big hubs. So JetBlue initially asked to suspend service to a bunch of small airports. And the DOT said, no, you've got to keep flying to Albuquerque and Bozeman and Palm Springs and whatever. But then the DOT gave uh, all the other airlines, you know, Sun Country exemptions on almost all of its routes because Sun Country mostly flies to big cities. And once JetBlue saw that, they're like, well, shit, we want in on that deal instead. And applied today for exemptions on 16 major airports. So JetBlue all of a sudden wants to not fly to Denver or Atlanta or Charlotte or Chicago or Minneapolis. So the list goes on. They're like, what was a, like, we don't want to fly to a few small airports. It'll be okay. They can either, you know, we'll fly less frequently or one of the bigger airlines will be there. Or in some cases, it's close enough to another airport like the, not JetBlue, but the Appleton Green Bay thing for United and American or whatever. Like, it'll all be okay. And the DOT said no to that, but went back and said, and now appears to be ready to, you know, we'll see if JetBlue really gets it. But like, say, you don't have to go to big cities anymore as long as you go to the small ones. It's a little backwards, right? I mean, well, it feels, it feels that way. It feels that way a little bit. I understand, though, trying to protect the small cities, right? If, if you let all the airlines say, okay, well, we don't, none of us have to go to Toledo, then Toledo truly gets cut off. If you let all the airlines say no one has to go to Atlanta anymore, someone's going to still fly to Atlanta. Maybe they have a widget on the tail, maybe they don't, but someone's going to still fly to Atlanta. So in that sense, they are letting the airlines, you know, these smaller airlines cut service. Um, You know, could I still argue that there's not a real need for Allegiant to also serve, um, you know, Bellingham 
because no one is driving across the border from Canada to fly out of Bellingham on Allegiant to Palm Springs. Yes, I could easily make the argument that requiring Allegiant to continue that service is stupid, but that becomes a subjective uh, decision, not an objective decision where the DOT can say it's based on these six characteristics now, or these three characteristics. Now, if you made it six characteristics, I, it could be objective again, not subjective, but then you get in the fight of, well, you clearly define the characteristics to allow for these things, but that's really how all of them are anyways. So but, I don't like know. In, in a situation like that, what if Allegiant came back and showed historical booking data that 90% of the passengers are Canadian? They have, and the DOTC said piss off. How does that make sense? I'm declining to answer because I don't have anything nice to say. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) You're you're right. It doesn't make any sense. And so, right. The question is, does there need to be a flight just in case someone has to get on board for these random small cities, even though the only route it flies is one that we know no one's going to want to get on. And is it not more, it's bad. It's less safe. It's a health risk for the crew. It's a health risk, you know, like, and with Allegiant, like, okay, once a week flight, but out and back from the hubs, like you, you still, you know, are you going to leave crew out at outstations and how do you deal with all those sorts of things? It's, it's really ugly. Well, and particularly at a time when the airlines are clearly financially struggling, you're forcing them to spend money on something they know they're not going to make any money on. But you're paying them to do it. But you, okay, but it, and that's you're not covering a, the full costs, but you are paying them to do it. But that's a smart use of taxpayer money. <laughs> this is where he has no comment. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we're back to no comment. Okay. Um, American. There was an interesting tweet by X John NYC on Twitter about an American flight uh, that was full, uh, and American had been saying they were going to block middle seats, uh, but apparently that is not the case. Well, you know, they're blocked until someone needs to sit there. Yeah, yeah. So much for social distancing on board, right? And so it's it's a tough situation. I mean, it's not that tough for airlines. They can either choose not to take the money or to take the money and just hope for the best. And, you know, it's when all the initial announcements about the blocked seats came out, my my thought was it's easy to block seats when no one's buying them. Yep. Right. And I went so far as to tweet that. Like, it's all for show as long as it's, you know, load factors are 10%. Claiming that you're blocking the seats is, doesn't matter. It turns out that American has an internal policy that says no VDBs or IDBs because of seat blocking, if necessary, book the seats. And I think that's what the tweet is, is John has some inside information about that. But, you know, it's, of course, that's from a business perspective, that is, I should say, of course, that is absolutely one way to run it. Um, You know, today, Southwest said, if they go down that same path, they will actually cap total seats sold on board. Um, Sir Michael O'Leary has said, if they're forced to block the middle seats to fly, they would just stop bothering to fly those routes or stop not fly yet until they can actually sell their capacity as they see fit so a lot of interesting uh interpretations of what that all means but yes if the airlines are just blocking the seats so long as no one's sitting there anyways it is in fact uh i'm not sure what the equivalent is of greenwashing uh in this current era but it's green a greenwashing sort of situation well it's 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 kind of like you know we're we're saying uh, like okay so you said no idbs or vdbs if you know the seat is if they can book it, right. that's, that's kind of ridiculous. So what you're saying is, is we'll put you in a middle seat. What if I chose not to fly because you're going to put me in a middle seat next to people? Like, would you refund my ticket? Probably not. Probably not. You know, flights operating. <laughs> yeah. Especially, you know, I, I could see someone having the argument that like you had, a, you, you published this policy, you know, file a DOT complaint saying false advertising. You published this policy saying you're blocking middle seats. I got on board and the middle seat wasn't blocked. So what do you think the cost difference to operate a, Full A320 is versus a two thirds full 321. Relatively low. 
I mean, it's probably not even that high. Yeah, I don't think it's probably not that high because it's not fully weighed down, right? So why not just upgauge all the airplanes but sell the lower capacity? Right, mm-hmm. you've got the planes. It's not like there's a shortage of planes right now. Um, you're already paying for the staff through this through September. Yeah, I say some crew considerations because there's total number of seats is higher, but whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, sure, I, I don't mind. Go for it. I'm sure there are some cost considerations that are driving it, and as it turns out, they're not really blocking the seats anyways. So, but you could for a negligible cost and block the seats and you know, you can do both is my point. Yeah. And not, and not cost a ton of money. Cause right now the planes are right size of the markets in theory to what they can fill. You've got the larger planes just sitting out there. You might as well just upgauge them and not sell the full plane. Cause right, right now we're having a very mild spring, but if we were having traditional spring thunderstorms and storms, Aerobs would throw everything into a nightmare. Yeah, you'd have completely full flights. Yeah. yeah. So here we go. American, this is statistics from DOT data ending December 2014. So the year, calendar year 2014. Uh, American Airlines A321 operations were $3,078 per hour. Uh, and their A320 operations for American are somewhere else in this chart, I'm sure. So I'm just going to stall by talking about that until I can find it. <laughs> um. And yet I still didn't find it. Oh, because it's still U.S. Airways. Uh, U.S. Airways A320s were $4,600. It was more expensive than American. But that was pre-merger. So who the hell knows what any of the math means. Um, did the U.S. have 321s yet? Yes. They've had 321s for a while. Yeah, they're the largest operator, right? Um, yet I don't see them in this listing as having them. So weird. Okay, well, maybe this random data I found on the internet isn't useful. <laughs> Is it on Wikipedia? No. <laughs> <laughs> Give him a little credit. They wouldn't have this sort of data readily handy and tax credit. <laughs> he is Bing. <laughs> um, so Air Sinai is kind of a fascinating story. It is uh, the result of a uh, term of the treaty uh, in 1979, the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt, uh, that said the two countries must maintain active civilian aviation routes. Um, meaning that there always had to be a direct flight between Israel and Egypt. And so Air Sinai was founded in 1982 and uh, fulfills those terms. Uh, Seth, what, what brought this up for you? Uh, a buddy of mine sent it to me. It, they got a story in Atlas, Atlas Obscura, mm-hmm. um, which we'll link to because it's a really good read. Um, but a buddy of mine sent that to me. I was like, hey, I'm sure you've heard of this. And I, it turns out I hadn't um, because like most people, I was terribly unaware that the flights existed. Um and just reading through the history of it, it's it's a subsidiary of Egypt Air, but flies on unmarked planes with a wet lease crew, but like historically never sold plane tick never sold tickets online. And you had to know someone who knew how to get in touch with them to buy the tickets. And like they never up until not long ago, they didn't even have their the flights listed on the departure boards. <laughs> like you had to find the check-in counter and have someone tell you what gate to go stand at. Um <laughs> it's truly a bizarre set of uh details about how the operation ran and still runs i mean now even today like supposedly there's all of a sudden an online booking or a website for it and when asked about it someone at the company said no that's not us at all why do you ask smiley face and then stopped responding to emails (laughs) it's like some fly-by-night operation maybe you're getting on a cia operated flight who knows Uh. (laughs) to be fair there is the concern amongst many people there that in the area that like the military from either side is tracking pe- passengers aggressively. So, you know, you laugh, but that is part of the consideration. The fear. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. We'll include the link. So uh, it is a good read for sure. 
Yeah. Um, for what it's worth, I've been looking over this other data a little more. Uh, USAR's A319s were $4,400. Uh, and their 320s, was that the one I want to compare to? Or the Americans? No, sorry. American 319s were 2933 per hour, and 321s were 3078 per hour. So the total cost per hour is pretty close to even. Obviously, this was a while ago, and things could change. But uh, presumably, as far as you're right, the trip costs would not be that much different. And fuel's super cheap right now, so no big deal. Yeah. They'll pay you to, to fly. Um, <laughs> Seriously. So... Uh, United. Let's let's talk about United. Um, today, <laughs> well, what'd you say? Nothing. Uh, today, uh, United kind of put up some verbiage, and then and then and, and then it got yanked because it it didn't appear later on in the day. Uh, some verbiage on their earnings page uh, for uh, premier qualifying points uh, for flights on uh, tickets on other carriers, Starlines partners or partner carriers, uh, we're going to be maxed out at 1500 for business. And I believe 500 for a coach or 600 for coach. So 600 PQPs, um, kind of closing what some people would call, I think Foz would call a loophole, uh, where you could fly relatively cheap partner tickets and earn a whole ton of PQPs, which just proves someone at United's bad at math, uh, because they put the partner earning stuff up there originally. So anyway, what do you think Foz? Um, about this, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with it. I, I, I mean, the the guy, the hole was pretty big because you could use what people are figuring out is particularly like on, uh, I think it was Air China or some of these other carriers, you could get some very lucrative fares from Europe to uh, Oceania and do like two or three of these trips and qualify for one k. Because you'd go over the the PQP limit. Yeah, so. I, I, I I'm I'm pretty. I, I don't know. I'm kind of mixed on this. I feel like it's it's kind of jabbing some of the better customers in the side with a knife. Um. For example, some of my coworkers go to India fairly often, um, and for them, booking on United.com is typically more expensive. But if they book with Lufthansa with a United flight number on the first segment and then Lufthansa on the connecting segment, um, it's but, you know maybe two maybe two thousand dollars cheaper. But if it's a United flight on the first segment, that should be zero one six t- six ticket stock and it shouldn't be impacted by this. Except it's issued by Lufthansa, and also flies in the face of that seamless ATI joint venture thing that they keep advertising. But generally the first operating carrier is what that gets plated on. Yeah, but we so we've seen mixed things on this. And especially so okay, so let's just take that as an example. It can be first carrier or it can be transocean excitement for what it's worth. So let's let's just take that example. So one of the coworkers lives in Denver, flies to Bangalore. There's a nonstop Denver Frankfurt on Lufthansa timed better than the United flight, in his opinion, because it leaves later. So he takes that, it's a you know eight thousand dollar ticket and he's going to earn 1,500 PQPs per segment? I mean, that's kind of crappy, in my opinion. Well, maybe he should be a Miles and More member. He could be a senator. <laughs> He'd be hot if he does it enough. Well, that's, but, that's my, but that's my point, is United's just kind of saying, eh, screw you, you're not high value enough for it. But, I mean, at the end of the day, right, they're, they should be driving people to put, fly their own metal, and if people are predominantly flying another metal, why should they incentivize them? Fair enough. I think they could have. I think they could have done this a different way. Oh, I mean, I, I think the way they're approaching it is wrong. What they should have just done is like seventy-five percent of the flight requirement should have been on United Metal. Yeah, right, and let you earn the PQPs up the wazoo if you want. But it would force people to actually fly United. Right, Instead of the four segment minimum. Yeah, and so the four segment minimum. But that's not what they did. But I mean, it would, United. The logic right now escapes me. Right at a time when they're clamoring about how much they're hurting and how bad bookings are like I'm ready to buy some tickets, but they won't open up a space, uh, upgrade space. So you would think at a time like this, they just open up everything 
to get people to buy tickets. Well, I guess any cash you can, any cash in pocket is good, but at what uh, booking horizon are you talking about for July for December? Like how far out? I, I've been looking at stuff in the fall and December, even stuff so, in the summer. Yeah. In the summer, I could sort of see it in the further out than that. It's anything past end of July right now and past 90 days. I, I don't really fault them as much because the theory is at some point they're going to be able to open back up and people are going to, you know, there's this pent up demand that people are going to pay to travel. So selling it as an upgrade now might not be the smartest thing. And if, you know, A, they don't, yes, they need cash, but they don't need nearly as much right now because they just got all the CARES funding. And B, like giving it away now in exchange, rather than selling it for more money later, if you don't desperately need the cash and they only mostly need it, not desperately, I get it a little bit. Yeah, but if you look at all the projections, no one's expecting anything to really rebound until next year. Like today, uh, this morning, United or overnight, United pushed out a schedule change where they basically canceled their entire summer seasonal stuff all the way to October. Yeah, right. Another good reason not to sell those seats. <laughs> right, because, 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 I mean, it does take you. It does take them a cool six weeks to issue the refund. So, oh, don't get me started. <laughs> it takes them four weeks to say that they've processed the refund. It then takes another two weeks for you to actually get the email saying that it, they've issued it, and then another seven to ten days, allegedly, before it hits your credit card. Yeah, but hey, at least they're offering refunds now instead of just travel vouchers. This was a refundable ticket. Oh man! Dun, 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 <laughs> yeah, they're busy. They, you know, the, the hamster wheels need to be oiled. And uh, yeah, anyway, well, it was so, really I mean, I, one of my refunds was a trip in vain, and this one was really weird. It came back as three partial refunds. <laughs> and I, I have no idea how, but they all added up to the right number. But I'm like, why is it like one was like forty nine dollars? And I have what no idea. The, what they, how many segments were in the original itinerary? Oh, when it was original. I want to know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when it was originally issued, it was four segments. But I think by the end of it, it became, I mean, I don't know. It was five, an extra segment through, through some SDCs, but then there was a trip segment back. All right, you're done. <laughs> don't 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 that's argue not, that's not united's fault you got your money back I'm sorry, you, got, <laughs> you, you lose the right to complain about that one. No, no, no i'm not complaining i was just like i was surprised as to how it got processed that's fair um so back on the pqp thing though i i think it's a it's a strange time to pull them to pull the move if if this is the case i mean it's it's uh you know you're struggling financially and now you're kind of like eh screw you flyer frequent flyers or people who we think rip us off um do you think that's more strange than pulling the partner award chart? Well, so that was my next point. Is, and on top of that now, they've pulled the partner award chart, uh, hinting at the fact that they are going to charge whatever the hell they want for a partner reward. So dynamic pricing. I mean, what I would say about the making the changes, like in some ways it's the right time to do it because very few people are going to get impacted. True. It seems more slick. Like you don't see a press release. It just, it just disappears from the website. Well, it's, not like, <laughs> it's not like the guys in Mileage Plus have a lot to do right now. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I've gotten way more partner emails for like solicitations of buy a credit card, buy a this, buy a that, sign up for opinions, all that shit. I feel like I'm getting more of those these days than I used to. I haven't seen anything. It only takes one intern to do that, Seth. So, (laughs) but um, yeah, I just I'm just kind of irritated by United right now. I think it's I think it's uh, no. I was gonna I was gonna write a nice letter to Oscar, not a mean letter, a nice letter suggesting the the change that you recommended, Foz, which is change the minimum number of United flights I have to fly to qualify instead of this PQP thing. Um, and I think the partner awards, I think that's just a that's a sign of them trying to save some cash, maybe. Yeah, it's a stupid time to do it though, right? Because it's a liability. 
until people spend it. Yeah, but it's a paper liability, not a real cost. People redeeming is a real cost. Is it though? Yeah, they have to pay to the uh, partner. But they all settle out if they if they open the, the if goal. it gets if it gets too imbalanced. Yes, it's, it's more of a real cost than the accounting for. Gosh, we have these these points on our books. Uh, theory. Yeah, I, I sort of do agree with you. Of the if you're going to make changes, make them in broad daylight when nobody is, has anything booked right now. So they can decide with a clear conscience what they want to do going forward. Um, I, I sort of get that, but I get the points thing. I, I don't really care about the points thing, but the, the award chart is just, you know, the problem is I, and I said it before, the way they're implementing these changes is just disincentivizing to the loyal travelers, right? They're treating a credit card mile, the same as someone who flies, gives them money to fly on their planes. And they really need to change that behavior. And they're not rewarding the people who are actually keeping them in the sky. Sure they are. Credit card revenue is huge. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't come with an obligation to actually, you know, hire flight attendants and operate airplanes. Right. But the people who are actually day-to-day... Okay, I I know what you're saying. I'm being a little glib. People collecting all these frequent flyer miles and credit cards, they're doing one trip a year. That's not keeping the airline in the sky. Right? The aspirational trips. (sighs) One would argue those do more to keep them in the air than the frequent traveler that costs them more. I would argue a lot of those people are not flying actually on United Metal. That's true. I would say, honestly, if I, was, I think most of them with the, the credit card redemptions are not people doing aspirational partner rewards. It's a lot of grandma visits and bag fee waiver, but buying the plane ticket or, um, you know, domestic rewards. I think that, you know, the number of people who are doing, and, and in any program, no matter what, the number of people doing sort of aspirational partner premium cabinet rewards is trivially small. But those are the ones that are costing them the most. Yes, absolutely. I just don't think that they're the ones you're saying they are. In this but case. I think those are, those are the ones that are redeeming. Most other people are not redeeming nearly as aggressively. But yeah, that's but why they're, they're, not, they're, they're, connecting, they're collecting through partners and is what you're saying. And so those points should be harder to redeem. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see where you're coming from there, but I don't, um, depending on how the money comes in on those, I don't think it's that bad. Um, and the, the, the numbers are small enough that playing, building the programs around the gamers um, and the most aggressive players is a recipe for a disappointment for everybody. But that's how they're making the adjustments. The, to, to punish those. Yeah, the devaluation is coming because of those people. It's not because the grandma flying to Orlando on a 25,000-mile ticket. Sure, but counterpoint to that is, okay, so there's half of a percent of the past of the members are these problem players. Who cares what you change? Because 99.5% aren't like, they oh, God, worry. Twitter's going to get outraged, and you're going to see crazy stories on the blogs, but, like, who cares? Like, the flyer talk got mad doesn't really change the program. No, but they're making the... It's substantial enough that they're for, they're changing the program because of those people, and in the process, you're hurting the people who are actually truly like keeping you in the sky on a weekly basis, getting on your planes. The the ones that are true, actual, where loyalty matters, right? You're- so I'll put the, I'll put this out there. I'll put this out there. I'm I'm actually thinking now. I'm seriously considering Delta. Okay, I know Foz. I know Foz. Why? Because at least then it's a clean airplane. You know, it's not some ratty old 320 that, that it, it, I'm, I'm not going to get an upgrade on. It's at least I have a chance and they treat me well in my experience. Um, so apparently that's what my loyalty's worth is being treated like a human being on Delta versus being treated kind of like garbage on United day to day. So why the hell would you stay? Uh, no offense, but why didn't you change a long time ago? Because the, it, at least hey, the yes, there's, a transition, there's a transition challenge. I get that. But like, yeah. 
I don't, I don't know, man. I just like, and part and of this, I don't travel, sorry, I don't travel for work nearly as much as you do. So it's different, but like, I would trade being treated decently on a day-to-day basis over getting an award every now and then in a heartbeat, especially if I was traveling more. I think for me, where I'm going, you know, where I've been going right now, New York and, and Montreal, United and Alaska kind of fit that bill better. Uh, just Delta's timings were worse. So that's really why I haven't made the move. Um, I, but I'm considering it now. I mean, I'll put it this way. My, my wife likes flying Delta. Um, she really likes flying Alaska, but she puts up with Delta. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I don't know, Seth. I mean, I, just, I, I, guess, I, I, I get loyalty is an irrational thing. So, like, cool. But I just can't get over the idea of, like, oh, God, the awards and the upgrades are going to be worth it. Well, and I don't think it's all that. I think, you know, when I say I get treated like garbage, I have very – I have varying experiences. My experiences at SFO and Newark have been pretty abysmal, uh, whereas my experiences here at Portland, pretty good with some exceptions, but pretty good. And, and people know who I am, and that's nice. Um, so, you know, if I see an agent that I and I have a problem that day, they take care of me. But um, other than that, like, I, I, there, there's no difference between them all at this point, really. Don't, it's scheduled. Don't, don't forget about B. Oh, yeah, good old B. Uh, my favorite United customer service agent. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying, Seth. Like you, yeah, you're just, saying re- reward reward the quality, right? Over the over- well, and just also like be loyal, but not to a fault. Reward yourself. Yep. You know, focus on you, not on them. So, so we'll we'll see what this next you know after COVID quiets yeah. down. We'll we'll see what what the the new year holds. Yeah, that's the other thing is trying to make a bet on what programs are going to look like six months from now. Yeah, yeah, not even going to try. Yeah, the hell knows how they're going to have to change everything to whether they're going to use the programs to entice customers back, whether it's all going to be co-brand at this point. Well, I mean, there's such an opportunity here to shift gear. If you are looking to make a change to anything related to your airline, um, as long as it's not a capital expense of like buying seats or you know hardware that gets installed on the planes, but any of the soft touch stuff, any of the business mm-hmm. rules stuff, now's the time to change it. Yep, soon that are building it. Yeah. Um, so speaking of, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so last story, Berlin, uh, Willy Brandt airport is, uh, looks like it's making its way to the finale boys. Um, the government has pretty much signed off on it, right? Six months out from the scheduled opening and they seem to have all the occupancy and operational permits in place. So all we need now are some planes and some traffic and, uh, Teagle is bye-bye. Teagle is already not seeing any flights, right? Yeah, it's closed. Yeah. So it's already bye-bye. Yeah, it's gone. Well, the question is, will it reopen this summer or not if any of the flights return? I mean, right, Germany, I mean, Germany is basically closed for commercial flights. So, I mean, so the next airport that, I mean, when Berlin reopens, the airport could be Willy Brandt, so, which I don't think is a bad thing. I'm just surprised they actually got it done. Hey, let's not let's not count our chickens before the hatch, there, buddy. I'm surprised it appears that it might actually be getting done. <laughs> so, right, now will Lefty race to fly the first A380 in there? Three eighty. That's what they were supposed to do years ago when it was supposed to open. They had a three eighty book to land as it opened, so no, they could have the rights, the bragging rights of saying they were the first carrier to bring a three eighty in there before one of the Mindy's carriers did. I mean, cool, but at this point, I mean, they barely have an A three eighty still flying. They could, they could just fly an A three eighty in there for fun, I guess. Now and then just say, "Touch it." How much fuel that would? <laughs> I mean, it's cheap, but it's not that cheap. <laughs> so do touch and goes. You know, on a random, I was looking at my United account. I don't know how this got in there, but when I look at frequent flyer programs in my profile, 
It's got my United number, which is expected. And then right after it has my BMI Diamond Club number. <laughs> is there something United knows that we don't? I, 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 maybe it's coming back. <laughs> You're done. They're, buy, they're buying Condor. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, I want to talk about that. That uh, Did we talk about the guy that did the, the approaches to JFK, LaGuardia, and Newark last show? I don't think so. So there's a video online. We'll post a link uh, of, a, of a gentleman who's flying in an experimental RV-8 and touches down at Newark, then LaGuardia, and then JFK before heading home. Um, and uh, just kind of funny because at no time <laughs> uh, during the during a regular travel season could you do this. But during COVID, yeah. it's a, So I have some really bad news for you. The, I believe the video is faked. Really? So I went back and I posted about this on my on the blog a little while, a couple weeks ago. And I went back and looked at the flight history for the registration. Yeah. And there is no single trip he does that includes the three flights in the sequence. He videos them with the landings he has. Um, if you like, if you watch the video, it says he had to run down to like Tom's River or something yeah. and then flew back up to the north part of Jersey or central Jersey. And if you find that flight in the flight history, it only does Newark and LaGuardia. And as he's climbing out of LaGuardia, he's talking to air traffic control. And the audio for that is in the is in the video feed. And you hear them say, sorry, JFK can't do that mm-hmm. or, something, or something to that effect. And then he says, his response is, well, you know, I think if I can just get close enough, maybe I can convince them to let me do it. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to turn east and give it a go. And if you go back and look at his the flight plans, the next day he went out and actually did all three. But I think I don't know why he did it the way he did, or maybe because he had already started the video editing with the story about being in Tom River or whatever. Yeah, but it's still cool to do it. Um, a lot of people are doing it now. There's, I mean, even military planes. There's a C-17 doing touch and goes at JFK and LaGuardia today. Um, yeah, so I, there I, was I watched, a, last yeah. week I watched a plane on on Flight Aware just going. It started at JFK, went to Newark, went to LaGuardia. And I, I think and then I went to I think it went to Islip. Yeah, a lot. I mean, they, they usually start to or from you know one of the small general aviation fields somewhere in the area. But there's a few that are doing uh, bonus points by touch and go at Teterboro too. So what I found fascinating about his his video was you know he he requests the approach. He doesn't request touch and go. He doesn't request landing. He requests a po- an approach. Pass, right. Yeah. And at, at Laguardia. Uh, he requests it, and he goes, uh, "I'm requesting a really low approach." And uh, the guy goes, well, uh, "He goes, well, how low can I go?" And he goes, well, "As low as you want." And so he touches down. Technically, he owes landing fee, but uh, <laughs> but he, you know, <laughs> he goes, "Oops," and then picks back up. Um, just it, it's funny. It's, it's a good yeah. video. Yeah, it is a really good video, but I think they sort of faked it. So yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, well, gentlemen, I think that's a show. So uh, to our listeners, uh, Lee, thanks for the question. Appreciate it as always. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. You can find us on Twitter at dots lines more dots more lines dot com. Leave a comment if you have a question. Ask it. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, and uh, yeah, happy travels. Bye bye. Take care. Have a good one. <laughs>